Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. It's my pleasure to bring to you Samantha Patton, who is a legal nurse consultant with experience in the OR, not only in the OR, but also in the pre-op holding area, in the PACU. She has assisted as a surgical first assistant, certified first assistant Mm -hmm. in several kinds of cases in a variety of different surgeries. And she's brought all that expertise to take us behind the scenes to the operating room, where there is unfortunately still a very common type of injury taking place. And that is wrong site, wrong surgery, wrong patient errors. Samantha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I know that our listener is probably going to say, well, there's all these safeguards in place. How is it that those kinds of errors still take place today? And we're talking to listeners in all parts of the world who have all levels of safety procedures in place. How do these things happen? Let's start there. Okay. Um, There are multiple safety guards in place um, that start the moment the patient is scheduled for surgery, before the patient even steps foot in the body. And then it continues from there to the patient getting into the operating room. Um, From my experience, um, it happens from lack of communication between staff members and surgeons um, or just between staff members, um, misunderstandings with patients, um, kind of a break in communication with them instead of asking leading questions I'm saying that backwards. Instead of asking them the procedure, different people going in with leading questions, and sometimes the patients are confused, or they're they're really not 100% clear what they're having done. Um, I've seen it with new staff members, maybe um, people that are just a little nervous to question. Um, like the patient, there might be a discrepancy in what the patient says versus what's on the consent. But if it's a newer staff member, um, sometimes they just don't want to, they're nervous about questioning the surgeon or bringing that to their attention. And then it just, once it falls through a couple cracks, then it just kind of snowballs. So unfortunately. I'm reminded of my mother who went in for a hysterectomy, who was a nurse at the time she had the surgery. And the 
Ivy cart came into the room. The nurse starts prepping her skin to insert the IV. She's in the middle of getting all of her equipment set up. And she says, you know, are you nervous about having your surgery, Mary? And my mother said, my name is not Mary. My name is Gladys. And the woman looked at her and said, oh, picked up the cart, left the room. My mother never saw her again. Mm-hmm. Something that simple stimulated me to say to my mother, well, I wonder what kind of surgery you were going to have that day, mom, <laughs> which she laughed about, but not too hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was just on the stage of starting the IV. Mm-hmm. You also said something that I wanted to comment on. My next door neighbor, when we're living in Florida, is about 82. Mm-hmm. And she is a reminder to me that not everyone understands their body, their surgery. Mm -hmm. I asked her, what kind of surgery did you have, Mary? Her -hmm. name is actually Mary. (laughs) She said, oh, you know, it was something down there. Mm -hmm. Oh, what's down there? You know, there's a lot of stuff between your head and your toes. Oh, you know, they did something. Mm -hmm. I had to say, that it took me back so much that I had to close my mouth and and almost mentally draw a finger over my lips to say, Pat, you are not going to say to her, how do you not know what they did Mm -hmm. to you? But she was very comfortable with not knowing. Mm -hmm. And if you put Mary, the true Mary, who lives next to me in the OR, she's not going to be able to tell a nurse what she's there for. Oh, the surgeon's going to do something. And no, I mean, you, you need to know, but she didn't need to know. And, and I found sometimes, especially with patients like that, um, like Mary, that sometimes if you go in and ask them the open-ended question, like I always ask, can you tell me your full name, date of birth, and what are we doing for you? Even if they couldn't tell me the procedure, I just would ask, what do you understand it is that we're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've witnessed multiple different providers, nurses, multiple different people go in to interview their patient or to see the patient and they'll say, hi, Mary, I'm so-and-so. So we're doing a right total knee and the patient, like it's a lot. They're interviewed by a lot of people and they'll just agree. Mm-hmm. They'll say, yeah, because it's, it's overwhelming for them. And they might not catch that that's not the right procedure. You know, that's our job. It makes me think of the patient safety measure when people are passing medications, particularly to confuse patients who Mm -hmm. will answer to any name. You want to call me Samantha? Okay. I could be Samantha today. Mm -hmm. But then I get Samantha's medications instead of my own because I didn't get asked, what is your name? And that's that, such a critical step. It is. And it's so simple. It, you know, it's just so simple to ask them to state their name instead of you preemptively assuming that's who it is. Well, let's go back to the man or woman who's got the knife in their hands. Don't they know who they're cutting on? 
So yes and no. Um, I've had experience on both ends of the spectrum with this. Um, one thing I think that contributes to it as well um, is a lot of surgeons, I say a lot, that's generalizing. Um, there's quite a few surgeons that use, um, that have physician's assistants or nurse practitioners that work with them in their clinic or that are seeing their patients preoperatively and postoperatively because most surgeons want to be in the OR. And so there are many times that patient, the patients never meet the surgeon until the day of surgery when the surgeon comes into the room to sign their consent form. Um, I've had patients meet the surgeons and hear them introduce themselves, go through the risks and everything, sign the consent, leave the room. I go back in to make sure that the patient understood everything. And then they ask me when they're going to meet the surgeon. And they still don't realize that that's who that was because they've never seen them before. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it. So if the surgeon, especially if they haven't seen them in clinic, they don't recognize that patient because they've never met them before. Their first meeting is an hour before their surgery is scheduled. And the patient's there with a cap on their head, covering up their hair. It's mm -hmm. just the face, usually laying down on a stretcher at the time. Which you would think would be a little insignificant as far as recognizing people, but it really skews the view more than you would think, especially, you know, and that's not even including during COVID when the patient's had the hats laying in the bed and the mask. And mm -hmm. we would have them pull their mask down, you know, but you add that to it. And a lot of people are unrecognizable then until maybe it's pointed out, I'm so-and-so. And then it kind of sparks that, oh, okay, now I recognize you. So. Now, we've talked about recognizing the patient and the patient getting a surgery mm -hmm. intended for someone else. I remember a case that came in my LNC practice with a woman who got a hysterectomy that was designed for another woman. And this was a young lady who wanted to have children and ended up under the knife for that. We've heard about um, people who've had mastectomies done more often because the pathology report was read incorrectly, but you could easily somebody undergoing that kind of radical surgery if they weren't properly identified. What about yeah. the wrong site? You know, because our bodies are designed that we've got two of most things, not everything, but two. And I've always heard attorneys joke about this. Well, she's got a left one, but she still has a right one. It's okay. <laughs> Tell us about how that happens, that the wrong side is operated on. Um, I luckily have in my career never had this happen. Um, so the standard of care for this is the surgeon, if it's a laterality, so if it's, you know, a right or left arm or leg or foot or finger, uh, hernias are about the same way. Um, 
the surgeon is required to initial the side of the procedure that we're doing. So if it's a right total knee, they have to put their initials after confirming it with the patient and the consent form on that right knee. Um, and sometimes, a lot of times they get in a hurry. They want production. They want the patient in the OR. They want quicker turnover times. So if they hadn't got a chance to go see the patient in the pre-op area, then they want you to take that patient to the room before I'll sign the consent in the room, but it's fine. I'll sign the consent in the room. I'll initial, you know, the foot in there or whatever. And if, if you don't have a staff member, at least one, um, that's assertive enough to say, no, we're not doing that. You're going to go see the patient over here and we're going to make sure everything matches up. Um, that can definitely happen um, on, on parts of the body that are, that's a laterality. Those initials also have to remain in the viewing field after the patient is prepped and positioned and after the patient is draped. So it has to be visible when the timeout prior to the incision is performed. That's why it has to be on the knee or not just, you know, the foot of the right leg that we're doing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm thinking back to my cataract surgeries when I came home with the initials of my surgeon mm -hmm. over my eyebrow to indicate the correct eye that was needing surgery. That's about as close as you can get to the eye if you do it on the forehead. Yeah. <laughs> but certainly I can see the knee. Um, my mother went in for a lung resection after she had colon cancer that went to met metastasize to one of her lungs. And she oh. took a piece of paper into the OR with her that said, it's my right lung. And the nurse said, oh, aren't you cute? And she said, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have. And, you know, the standard, too, is the physician and or staff cannot do an X and they cannot mark the opposite side of the body like to say no, for instance, um, there was a little bleep in a time period. And I can't even tell you how many years ago that was that I saw that for a small window of time. There were a few surgeons that would write no on the opposite side that we are doing. Mm -hmm. And it, that in itself is, can be super confusing and that can definitely lead to a wrong side surgery. Yes. Yes. Particularly if the surgeon's name was something like Neil Osman. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> well, you mentioned the timeout a few minutes ago, <laughs> Samantha. So take us through what that's like. What does that look like? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. What if you could apply your nursing skills to work that doesn't involve a daily commute? 12-hour shifts, continuous exhaustion, and too often putting your life at risk? What stands in the way of you starting a new career where you can work at home 
have flexible hours, and finally to get to spend some time with your family. In my book, Get Your First LNC Case, I share what I learned about how to build a successful business. I went from being on the verge of losing my home to a career as a legal nurse consultant. I built a multi-million dollar independent legal nurse consulting business. The practices and principles you'll discover in this book come directly from what my colleagues and I learned about how to start a business. You may be thinking, it sounds great, but do I have what it takes to become an LNC? Do you like digging into medical records? Do details fascinate you? Do you enjoy writing reports? Do you enjoy researching and learning? Do you like to teach? And do you communicate well? These are the qualities a successful LNC needs. What else do you need? Get your first LNC case. This book takes you through the essential building blocks for starting your business. With chapters on my lessons from the first and subsequent cases, what it takes to get started, and various paths you can follow, overcoming career risks, and more, the book is full of practical and realistic advice. Take the first step and read Get Your First LNC Case. Go to lnc.tips forward slash creating series and buy an instant download of the book or use the button to head over to the sales page on Amazon for the paperback or Kindle copy. Now let's return to the show. Okay, so the timeout and AORN actually put out some new kind of standards um, called a briefing that kind of goes along with the timeout. Um, so once the patient is in the room, and this is after multiple people and hands should have been checking to make sure everything is correct. The patient is moved to the operating table. They are positioned, they're put, they're put to sleep, they're positioned, prepped. Um, and draped. The timeout is not to be performed until every person that is involved in that surgery, and that includes the anesthesia provider, the circulating nurse, the scrub tech, the surgeon and assistant and or other surgeon who is helping on the case. Um, they all have to be in the room and remain in the room before that timeout can be completed. Um, you can't do the timeout and then have the surgeon go out and scrub their hands and come back in because then you get to do another timeout. Um, well, that's and, like hurting cats, isn't it? Uh, oh, for a bath. That's what I always say. It's hurting cats <laughs> for a bath. <laughs> right. And um, the circulating nurse finds the patient's armband. We always try to make sure it's on a on a side and positioned in a spot that we can easily get to it. Um, the nurse and the anesthesia provider call a timeout. Everyone in the room is supposed to stop what they're doing. So no messing with the back table, no draw the surgeon drawing their lines on the patient, nothing. Everyone's supposed to stop what they're doing. We read the patient's name and date of birth. 
match that to their consent form and their chart. And we read the procedure. I'm walking through it in my head. This is Sam Patton, date of birth, such and such. She is here for a right total knee arthroscopy. She has no drug allergies. She got one gram of ANSEF. Does everyone agree? And everyone in that room has to make eye contact with one another, agree. And then everyone proceeds. The surgeon then on the briefing end of things is supposed to say, okay, this procedure is expected to take X amount of time. I don't expect, or I expect minimal complications. Um, does anybody have any questions or concerns? Everybody says no. Then they say, should say, if you have any concerns during the procedure, please voice them. May I begin? So it's a pretty well-oiled machine when it's done properly. Yes. <clears throat> I've also heard of a step of people introducing themselves in the OR with, and I think this comes from the airline industry of the fact that pilots and co-pilots and crew could not know each other at all. Have mm -hmm. you seen this type of thing where I'm John Smith, the surgeon, and then the scrub tech introduces themselves by name. Does that happen? Um, sometimes. Um, it always happens with everyone except the scrub. And sometimes it does with them and sometimes it doesn't. It just kind of depends on what they're doing at the moment um, when the patient gets in there. But with everyone else in the room, it does very regularly. Okay. Should very regularly. Yeah. Should is the operative <clears throat> word in our world. Yes. We talked about wrong patient surgery. We talked about wrong site surgery. Can you take us into what are the factors that might contribute to the wrong surgery being performed? man. Um, so in my experience, sometimes that happens or what I've experienced is when the patient is scheduled for surgery and then we get the orders and everything sent over in the pre-op area or the pre-op nurse um, before the patient steps foot in the facility goes through the chart and make sure that the operative report or not the operative report, the operative consent, the history and physical from the surgeon and the, the surgeon's orders all match. Um, occasionally there's discrepancies in those, but occasionally all of those match, but the procedure that was actually scheduled does not match any of those. Um, I have personally never experienced with anything like a gallbladder instead of a hysterectomy. Um, 
most of the time I've seen it on additions. So like if they come in for a knee arthroscopy and they're going to do a debridement of their MCL or yeah, MCL. But they're supposed to have like an ACL reconstruction (laughs) or shoulders were always a big one too. Um, for some reason, shoulder arthroscopies, um, the patient would be scheduled for a rotator cuff procedure and that would be across the board, what everybody thought was happening. And then we get in there and they're like, Oh no, it's not his rotator cuff. It's his labrum. I don't know why that was marked on there. Mm -hmm. So those have been my experiences where it's more of, so sometimes I think it's the scheduling and then, and I hate to say this, but when you have surgeons that just want to rush the patients through because they want to be in the OR so long, you know, that's where they want to be. They miss those little things or they don't think that those little things are that big of a deal. They don't think that the patient that was scheduled for a rotator cuff, but it's actually a labral tear. They don't think that that's that big of a deal. They think, well, I'm in here anyway, it's right next to it. It's no problem. Mm -hmm. And, but it is a big deal. (laughs) You start moving that line in the sand of thinking things aren't a big deal. And that line soon disappears. Mm -hmm. When my husband got colon cancer six months before my mother got colon cancer, we shared with the nurse anesthetist when we were doing the pre-op workup she said has your husband ever had any problems with anesthesia and we said no and i said but his brother died on the table which immediately got her attention Mm -hmm. he was a a physician who had a ruptured appendix but he didn't recognize that his appendix had ruptured he thought he had flu he attributed the symptoms to flu his wife my sister-in-law even said, do you think it could be your appendix? No, no, no. And he was a doctor, my Mm -hmm. brother-in-law. So by the time he came into the OR, he was so septic that he he died. And it had nothing to do with the anesthesia, Mm -hmm. but it impressed the nurse anesthetist to the point that she went in and told the surgeon Mm -hmm. and made sure that he was aware. So in the middle of surgery, one of the OR nurses came out and said, the surgeon would like to do an appendectomy while he's in there. So your husband never has to worry about his appendix rupturing. And I said, I'm happy to sign any consent that you want. And I never got a Mm -hmm. piece of paper to sign, Mm -hmm. but I was impressed with the fact that they made the point of coming out and telling me and absolutely permission, because that was essentially an add on and they were Mm -hmm. already there anyway but they made a point of informing me. Absolutely. And, you know, there are times when things come up during a surgery, like obviously, for instance, in colon cancer, like when we're doing a colectomy, if the patient has a ton of adhesions, we don't get a separate consent for that because that's, that's part of the procedure. It's, 
the global encompassing of that. Um, but something like that, that is absolutely how that should have been handled. And that's fantastic because if it's an add-on or something that is, that has nothing to do with the procedure at hand, then the patient's family should be made aware and ask consent. Mm -hmm. Well, to summarize what we talked about in terms of these causes, wrong patient, wrong site, wrong surgery, in looking at the factors that result in this, as we wrap up, could you briefly run through for our guest who's watching this show, our podcast guest, what are the factors that you see to be most important that we should be thinking about as we're analyzing those kinds of cases? Um, the chain of events from the patient the time the surgery is scheduled. Um, I think that is one important piece of the puzzle. I think that a lot of people maybe aren't aware of um, to know if all those factors added up, if the surgery, because the surgery schedule isn't something that's typical of a medical record when you're receiving that from a client. And to know if from the get-go was that surgery scheduled correctly, did it match the consent form? Did it match the history and physical? Did it match the um, order? Was the, if there was a radiology report, did the radiology report match all of those? If it said it was the right knee, arth you know, osteoarthritis, is that matching up with everything else and matching what the patient says? Um the documentation on all of those things being performed. And if there is something that is wrong, if there's something that is not connecting or not coherent, you know, cohesive across the board, where's the documentation showing that the surgeon was notified or informed or asked? And if they were, what was their response? Then what was the staff's response? Um, I think those are huge factors, um, because in all reality, in the day and age that we live, this should never, this should all be addressed before the patient even gets into the operating room. It should never get to that point. Mm -hmm. One of the factors that I've heard you mentioned a couple of times is the production pressure, the surgeons need to follow the schedule to get through as quickly as possible so that that precious OR table is cleaned and draped for the next person who's going to be coming in that room and that that haste can be a factor. Those few extra minutes that the surgeon should have taken could translate into hours and months and days of being involved in litigation for that quick, quick, faulty decision-making. Absolutely could. And that's, a, it. it's a huge factor. And, you know, I'm not sure if that is, you know, I, I think I've seen kind of both sides of that coin. I think I've seen that pressure from surgeons that just want to be in the OR 
And then I've seen that pressure because they're getting pressure because they might be employees of the facility or you know what I mean? Like if they're not an independent practitioner, then their pressure isn't really from themselves. They're getting pressure too. So then that just trickles down. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a huge factor in it. The, the taking the personal out of it and rushing these patients through like cattle is, is not standard of care. You know, that that certainly applies to all kinds of surgeries, Samantha. And I think my message to the listener is if you have a Mary in your life who doesn't understand what's being done to her, give her some education. Make sure that she knows so when she does have that surgery, she can be coherent and make sure she's getting the surgery that she's supposed to be getting. How can our listener find out more about you and the services you offer? Um, I am on LinkedIn under Sam Patton, um, LMC. Um, I have a consulting business that I am the lead consultant at, but I am, my contact information is on LinkedIn for right now. And Sam's last name is spelled P-A-T-T-E-N. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Sam, for sharing your expertise with us. I know that you've left an impression on our listener, particularly the person who's going to surgery, somebody they know love is going to surgery, or they're analyzing a case involving a surgical error. And one thing we didn't mention, which I just want to slip in, is that there might be a sales rep in the OR whose Mm -hmm. name is listed in the documentation, who is in a position to observe what Mm -hmm. went on, that Mm -hmm. person can have valuable information and might need to be deposed about the facts of the case. That was a factor in one of the cases I was involved in. And when the sales rep's deposition testimony came out, it blew the case apart because she shared things that we had no way of knowing Mm-hmm. without her having been there in that room. That's a fantastic point. Well, thank you for being a guest on Legal Nurse Podcast, Sam. And thank you to you who's been watching this. Be sure to download our app, Expert Edu, which you can get from the Apple Store, and you'll get tips on legal nurse consulting and writing. Or you can go to the Google Play if you have an Android phone, That's a mobile app called Expert Edu, and that's my app. And I'll see you on our next show. Thanks so much. Thank you. My name is Pat Iyer, and this is Legal Nurse Podcast. I have just finished interviewing Karen Harmon, who has 28 years clinical experience, 25 of those in the obstetrical area. And her current focus, and has been for several years, is as a legal nurse consultant, an expert witness, specifically in obstetrical cases. We talked in her podcast about a unfortunate and somewhat common issue of shoulder dystocia, common in the sense that it may be a type of case that an attorney could come to you to help with, to help screen, 
to help analyze and to help look at all the factors that led up to that outcome in the delivery room. Karen, I know that with that background, the person who's watching this is going to say, what did Karen talk about in her podcast? Let's go through those points. So you're given a shoulder to social case. So how do I manage this case? So we are going to talk about um, risk factors that can be identified prenatally. What are some risk factors um, identified during the course of labor? But most importantly, what are the nursing responsibilities managing a patient in labor? And most importantly, what are the roles and responsibilities of the nurse in the delivery room once a shoulder dystocia has been diagnosed? These are high damages cases with some lifelong deficits that these infants have to cope with and have to compensate for, for the duration of their life. Something that happens within minutes in the delivery room have lifetime consequences. Karen is the person to tell you from the nursing perspective how to look at these cases as a legal nurse consultant, what are some of the key performance indicators and the ways that nurses can get in trouble and become defendants in a shoulder dystocia case. Be sure to find Karen Harmon's podcast on Legal Nurse Podcast, that's H-A-R-M-O-N, and take a look, take a listen, if you're listening to the programs, you can get them on our audio channels. If you want to watch Karen's podcast, go to Legal Nurse Business YouTube channel and you'll see her in living color. Be sure to catch her podcast and come back and get that show. Thanks so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest. <laughs>